If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll hear me speaking to the author and historian John Wolfe. I met John in London to discuss his new book, The Wonders, which delves into the strange and surprising world of the Victorian freak show. So you begin your book by terming the Victorian era the, quote, age of freaks. Why? Well, I mean, I think it's something that's massively overlooked, but the freak show as a form of popular entertainment um, was ubiquitous. It was everywhere in the Victorian era, whether it was on the street, whether it was in music halls, in theatres, in zoos, aquariums, a Buckingham Palace, the freak show was everywhere. And these freak performers were the celebrities of their generation. You know, some of the first international celebrities were freak performers. And I think it's a side of history that's often been uh, slightly ignored. And so by age of the freak, I wanted to uh, emphasise the absolute centrality of this amazing form of entertainment and these amazing individuals who capitalise on their extraordinary bodies to become well-known celebrities of their age. As you mentioned there, the, quote, freak show took many forms. But if we were to go back in a time machine to the 19th century and visit an exhibition or an auditorium or a freak show, what might we encounter? What would that experience be like? 
Well, so the first thing you'd experience, let's take, for example, say we're going to the Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly, um, in London, and you'd have all sorts of people there. You would have men, women, children. You'd have some working class, some middle class. The freak show is a very popular affair. You would enter... Um, you might take your seat or you might be standing and usually the act would be introduced by a showman who would tell this fabulous story about, let's say, um, the Siamese twins who were, were discovered out in Siam, bearing in mind you don't know much about this region, this is a sort of alien place. You'd hear the story, you'd be intrigued and then the performers would enter now, usually they might tell a bit of their story or they might perform. They might do some acrobatics or they might um, answer questions from the audience. And so you would also get an opportunity to, um, to interact with them. And then at the end, you might buy a souvenir. You might buy a pamphlet of their story. Um, you might buy a, a photograph. So it's an it's a interactive experience. It's a visual experience. You hear things and you come away with this sense of wonder and awe, um, you know, the, the majesty of, of, of nature. Your book focuses on the 19th century, but there is a longer heritage um, to this. What were some of the origins of the freak show and how did it become mass entertainment? Yeah, so I mean, the book starts in uh, the 17th century. You know, I began there because, as I say in the book, the roots of the freak show occur in two paradoxical places. One is in the royal courts of Europe. And, you know, again, a history that's not told that much. But the royal courts of Europe um, had loads of people who later populated the freak show. I mean, Philip IV of Spain, he had about 110 dwarves in his royal court. The dwarves were sold, swapped and bred around Europe for these royal collections. So you've got the royal courts where people with bodies deemed different were kept and displayed themselves for a private audience for amusement of the royals. You then have a much longer history of the travelling fairs. And again, in my book, I look at this fantastic gentleman um, called George Sanger, who's almost like Britain's Barnum equivalent. And his life takes you into the world of the travelling fairs. Um, they were rough, dangerous, transitory, lonely worlds. But there you had performers with bodies deemed different displaying themselves. Um, and so you've got this long history, a really, really long history. You know, it goes back even before then. And then as you get into the 19th century with the rise of a kind of more commercial culture, the rise of mass entertainment and the proliferation of venues, um, you then see freak performers moving from the fairs, moving from the travelling fairs and into these permanent sites. Um, and so that really begins around the 1840s. And, uh, you know, by the end, by the late 19th century, um, you have freak performers in every conceivable expression of popular culture, uh, whether they're in minstrel shows, whether they're at the conglomerate circuses, whether they're at world fairs in zoos, aquariums, they're everywhere. And that continues really up until, you know, the First World War and, and even later. Um, but that's the peak of the popularity, late 19th century. I think the idea of a freak show could make a lot of people very uncomfortable in 2019 when we're talking. And language and vocabulary are very important when we're dealing mm. with these kind of things. And how did you make sure that we're not just um, delving back into the same voyeurism when we're studying this? Yeah, it's a really difficult balancing act. And for me, essentially, when I talk about the freak, 
The freak is very different to the freak performer. So the freak is, it's like a character. It's an identity. It's a, a social construction, if you like. It's a performance. The freak performer is the private individual who plays the role of the freak. So when I talk about freak, I mean very much a construction and a performance, and the freak performer is a private individual. And I think that's a really important distinction. And the word freak itself has quite an interesting history. And, you know, it's got a lot of negative connotations. But also in the disability rights movement, you know, the jury's slightly still out because some people use it as a badge of pride within the sort of geek love mentality of a sort of way of reclaiming a word that the many disliked. The idea of putting people who are different in some way on display, how did... Um people justify it in the 19th century. Say you're a, a person of short stature in the 19th century. Um, your opportunities are really quite limited. Um, you know, you're, in all likelihood, you're facing a life of economic hardship, um, precarious living, dependency. Someone like Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man, is another example, life in the workhouse. Then comes along a uh, showman or an opportunity for you to enter the world of entertainment, become an active economic agent where you are earning a living, present yourself in front of people that clap and applaud, and make your own um, journey as an independent person in a world designed against you. Well, that's quite a, a, an appealing, a, appealing proposition, especially when your options are very limited. So what you find in the freak show is this really complex dynamic between exploitation on the one hand, and let's not kid ourselves, this certainly was exploitation, alongside empowerment, and also coercion, because a lot of these performers were coerced, but also choice as well. Many people chose to go into the freak show. Um, so, you know, it's very... I'm wary of it, sort of casting our modern sensibilities onto the past. It was a very, very different world. I think that's a really interesting central paradox, paradox throughout your book, is this kind of push and pull between empowerment and exploitation. If you had to pick, maybe it's impossible, which do you think was the dominant strand? Was it empowering for the freak performers or was it exploitative? I'm going to do that really annoying historian <laughs> thing of not wanting to generalise. It really does depend. Um, let's take the example of um, Charles Stratton, Tom Thumb. He was thrust on stage at four years old. He was four years old when he was first placed on stage. Did he have much choice or agency in that decision? No. Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man, according to his own autobiography, he decided to enter the freak show and uh, escape the workhouse. He said that the freak show was good to him. So there is an example of empowerment, but only up to a point because he also ended up being abused and robbed of his life savings on the continent. So it's complex. You have another couple I talk about in the book, uh, the Bateses. Now, Anna Bates was uh, from Canada. Um, she was referred to as a giant. She was abnormally tall. And for her, the freak show provided her pathway into a life of normality. She earned money. Uh, she was respected. She received an education. She left the freak show. She married another giant from the freak show. And they retired in America. So the freak show was her path to normality. So it is incredibly complex. And I wouldn't want to say that... It's like saying with the entertainment industry today, is it more empowering or, or exploitative? You know, it's a, it's a complex one. 
What do you think that this obsession with freak shows tells us about Victorian age more generally, especially um, about attitudes towards the body? I think it, it tells us a wealth of things. I mean, for me, one thing that I really was interested in is how science related to um, the freak show. And you have this uh, very close relationship between science and freakery, the freak show, the beginning of the century. But it slowly starts to change as you go later into uh, across the century, where physical difference is pathologized, it's seen as abnormal, um, and it increasingly goes from the stages of the freak show into the laboratories, into the institutions. So it tells you a lot about relationships to medicine. It also opens you up into the world of ethnography and anthropology and how race was perceived as different. It opens you into a world of masculinity and views of um, the, you know, the male body and what manliness stood for, femininity, se- a wealth of things. So I think that's what I found so interesting about the freak show we tend to think of it as this sort of weird marginal affair. But actually, um, not only was it central in the Victorian period, but it reflects back the concerns of, of the age as well. I just want to pick up one of the threads you brought up there, which was race. And several of the acts that you look at in the book, they capitalised on fear or perhaps ignorance about other races. Could you tell us about some of them and, and the role that ethnicity often played in freak shows? Sure. So... I mean, again, there was different different discourses around race. So, for example, Chang and Eng, known as the Siamese twins, they come to London in 1829, and they were very much presented and perceived through the prism of Orientalism. So, the, the you know the East as this exotic backward place. And so in their pamphlet, it talks about some of the brutalities uh, that occurred in the East, playing on notions of uh, violent oriental despotism. Um, and so those prejudices impact how people per- perceive them as well. Another really interesting example of that, I thought, was um, Julia Pastrana. I wonder mm. if you could tell us about her. Yeah, so the tragic story of Julia Pastrana, I mean, she uh, was first displayed, probably from Mexico, first displayed in London around 1857. Now, she was displayed by her her showman-come-husband. He had married her. Um, They travel around Europe. Uh, She's a bearded lady, um, so she's... uh, both seen as physically different but also racially different because of being from Mexico and perhaps they used to refer to her as a root digger Indian. Her mother was supposed to be from a root digger Indian tribe. So she had a physical difference and a racial difference. She travelled round with her husband, a quite unscrupulous man called Theodore Lent. Then in Russia, she gave birth to a baby boy who was born with the same uh, congenital deformities. And sadly, both mother and child died in childbirth. Um, or shortly after childbirth, and the husband decided that he was going to sell their bodies so um, to the anatomist school. But he had a change of heart in, in a sort of dark turn to the phrase, the show must go on. He had his dead wife and child embalmed, and he continued to display them across, across America. And now someone like Julia Pastrana, you have this weird dynamic between how people perceived her when she was living and how people perceived her when she was dead. So when she was living, uh, you know, she was perceived as, as feminine yet animalistic. You know, she was billed as the baboon lady, the, be- the bear lady. Um, but when she was dead, she was perceived more as a sort of Egyptian mummy, if you like. 
Um, and at the time, embalming was quite common in uh, in uh, America. Um, so she was she became almost a scientific specimen, the art of embalming. Um, so the way people perceived her changed as uh, well as she went from living to dead. Especially for men of medicine, freak performers were interesting alive, but they were even more interesting dead. And that's one reason why they sort of hovered around the freak show, because they were desperate to get their hands on these so-called abnormal bodies. And so throughout the history of the freak show and the freak performers on stage, you've got this darker undercurrent of men of medicine um, and anatomists and physicians desperate to get their hands on freak show bodies, which they did um, commonly, whether that was dwarves, giants, um, they were prized scientific specimens. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There's always a danger in sensationalising or being voyeuristic or even mocking um, or romanticising the freak show. But at the core, and this is what I really try to do in my book, you're talking about humans, individuals who live these fascinating lives. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was how it tied into the big ideas of the age, such as Darwinism, which is something you talk about in the book, and how the freak show capitalised on these new ideas. Yeah, so, I mean, for example, with Darwin, you've got... um his notion, once you propose uh, evolution, 
one of the interesting things that came out at the time was, was there a missing link between ape and man? So Freak, uh, Freak Showman capitalised on that and they build certain performers as you know, the missing link between ape and man, really tying into to Darwin's theories about evolution. So Darwin's discourses became really utilised in the Freak Show as a, well of, as a way of uh, popularising uh, Freak performers. So you've got the sort of history of science also filters into the freak show because they were utilizing discourses of darwinianism you know survival of the fittest which initially helped popularize freak performers but also came to uh, uh, cause trouble for freak shows later on how so well if you start thinking that humanity is racing towards um uh, development and suddenly you've got these throwbacks to a bygone age, those who have failed to properly advance. The idea of um, learning and staring at those differences with a source of wonder uh, diminishes. Actually, they become a social threat. They become quite menacing. They become um, uh, an obstacle to the evolutionary advance. And so people started to shun freak shows more and more um, as we get later into the century um, because, you know, people didn't were worried about degeneracy. It's interesting that um, you tie that to people being worried and scared of freaks rather than um, the, the decline of freak shows, I mean, um, rather than an ethical dilemma about the morals of freak shows. Yeah, I mean... It's interesting because I spent a lot of time researching freak shows. It was you know, based on my PhD as well. And the moral arguments against the freak show never really surfaced that much when I was doing research. Um, that wasn't really the concern. It was more about the concern of uh, the moral fabric of the nation and those that went to, to view freak performers. So you sometimes have warnings outside of freak shows that you know women shouldn't go, especially if pregnant, because of fears of maternal impressions, that if they saw this monstrous being on stage, it would somehow mark their uterus. So you get that those kind of concerns. In the 1840s, you, particularly around what I talk about in the book, deformitomania, this obsession with the um, abnormal body, you get concerns about um, a decline in public tastes, a decline of, you know, we're the, the nation of Shakespeare, what are we doing, you know, obsessing about Siamese twins and dwarves type of thing. Um, so you get those types of moral concerns, but not so many for the actual individual on stage. They do exist, but not that many. A towering figure in, in this story is P.T. Barnum, who I think a lot of people might be familiar with recently because of the very glossy musical The Greatest Showman. I found that a very strange approach to the P.T. Barnum story because in many ways he was incredibly exploitative of the performers he worked with. How do you think we should view P.T. Barnum? I mean, look, don't get me wrong, I loved The Greatest Showman. I thought the music was great, it was brilliant, it was great fun. Um, but it was also, and actually caveat all of that, I don't like, I'm not one of those historians that watches something and criticises everything in it. Because, it, you know, it wasn't meant to be totally historically accurate. That wasn't the point. So I get that. And it was great and big thumbs up for it. But it misses such a great opportunity. Firstly, I think it... As you say, it totally whitewashes um, P.T. Barnum and his legacy. Secondly, actually, the stories I thought were more interesting were the freak performers themselves. They hardly feature. And thirdly, there are so many myths and falsities in, in The Greatest Showman that sometimes I was left feeling a bit frustrated. Like, why couldn't you have... 
you know, presented him as the complex man of his time that he was. You know, he, this man was not the devil incarnate, but he was a slave owner. He did exploit people of color. He did put young children on stage at the age of four. You know, he has a complex legacy and they could have explored that. It wouldn't have been difficult. And so I was kind of frustrated that they whitewashed it so much. Barnum, love him or hate him or whatever you think of him, he did in many ways revolutionize the entertainment industry. Yeah, I mean, certainly, he, his influence in the world of entertainment, you know, beyond what we, what we could talk about, but in terms of the freak show, he really helped bring about the, the birth of the freak show as a sort of permanent commercial organisation. And the turning point was really around 1842. So this guy, you know, he was, he was a traveller, he was an itinerant, he peddled... I mean, he peddled this lady called Joyce Heth, who was 161 years old, apparently. Um, and she was senile. She was uh, a slave um, and she was paralysed. You know, she was, I, When I was writing about her, I thought about my grandmother, my elderly grandmother. And she was thrust on stage. She was poked and prodded. Whether she really knew what was happening, we don't know. She died. Um, and Barnum had a public autopsy of her body. You know, everyone came, he made thousands, and that kind of helped propel him um, into public consciousness. But he was still an itinerant. And the turning point came when he bought what was called the American Museum in New York. And this gave him a permanent base where he revolutionised um, the, the muse museums. Um, and he had artefacts, he had live freak shows, um, and that really brought him onto the map of entertainment. And from the American Museum, um, you have, in a way, the birth of the freak show, commercialised, popular, perceived as respectable, in a permanent venue. And his first major star was this guy called Charles Stratton, Tom Thumb, four years old. And so, you know, the history of the American Museum looms large in the history of the freak show. P.T. Barnum, in many ways, helped instigate the birth of fake news and alternative facts. And it really goes right back to his uh, display and, frankly, the exploitation of Joyce Heth, this senile slave, who, when she dies and is dissected, you know, very gruesomely in a public autopsy, um, the stories that come out later by Barnum, who was an advertising genius, um, really marked, in my opinion, the kind of start of a fake news alternative facts fad that was very much rooted in The Freak Show. And The Freak Show sort of thrived off, off fake news. I mean, it was very much uh, how they brought people into their shows and uh, figuring out what was true and what wasn't true was part of the appeal of The Freak Show. Another figure I found really interesting um, to read about was Daniel Lambert who you take quite an interesting take on him and how he shaped national identity. Yeah, so Daniel Lambert, um, aged 36 years old, he was about 52 stone. So he was obese, he was morbidly obese. So he was born in 1770 in Leicester um, and he was apparently a healthy, active child. He then, uh, he, he did an apprenticeship, he came back to Leicester, he was a prison keeper and then the prison closed down. Now, during his time as a jailkeeper, he uh, grew incredibly fat and people came and were staring at his body. You know, you can't escape your body. And when it's so different, it, um, it entraps you, if you like, because people are always inquiring. They're always there to take a look. 
And so he decides to go and uh, enter the freak show in a very sort of respectable way. He goes down to London and he rents an apartment of 53 Piccadilly. He charges about a shilling and visitors come and observe him. Anyway, so he had that kind of freak show background. But what was really interesting about Daniel Lambert is when he died, you had all of these pamphlets and all of these biographies that came out um, talking about his life, you know, kind of seeping him in the discourse of eccentricity. He was seen as eccentric because of his body. Now, he was eccentric and he was fat. And these were two things that were seen to um, be particularly English traits. And so Daniel Lambert ends up, after his death, entering this weird world where he's actually seen as a sort of British icon, a John Bull-type character. And this proliferates in eccentric biographies that write a lot about his story, where Daniel Lambert is the true son of John Bull, or in political caricatures, where he literally becomes John Bull. Now, what's also interesting if Daniel Lambert, the corpulent man representing England, true-born Englishman, this is in opposition to Napoleon and the French. Um, and there was the Napoleonic Wars, there was fear of the French, you had the French Revolution, some of that was to do with hunger, you know, not having enough food. Um, so you get this weird kind of relationship between Britain and Daniel Lambert representing Britain as a corpulent man against the sort of emaciated uh, French um, and so he enters this weird sort of space of being a, an icon of, of Britain. Who were some of the other performers who particularly captured your imagination personally? I mean, there's, there's so many. There are so many. And one of the things I tried to do in the book was, you know, tell the history of the freak show through these fascinating lives. And I couldn't include all of them. But one of them who really stands out for me is Geoffrey Hudson, 17th century court dwarf, essentially, um, seven years old, he served in a pie um, at a royal banquet to Queen Henrietta Maria. Um, you know, she was 15 years old, this queen. She was a Catholic in Protestant England. She was isolated. And at this banquet in 1626, this massive pie is presented to her and out pops this, uh, this seven-year-old 18-inch dwarf called Geoffrey Hudson. And so he goes back to the royal courts and he has this incredible life. He goes from being like a court pet, a court dwarf, to becoming a court warrior. There are rumours that he fought in the English Civil War for the uh, royals against the parliamentarians. He then kills a man in a duel, believe it or not, and is banished from the court. When he's banished, he's then enslaved by Barbary pirates for 25 years, possibly tortured. He is then released. He goes back to his hometown. He returns to London and uh, he's caught up in anti-Catholic sentiment and he's imprisoned and he dies an outcast. You can't make that kind of story up. I mean, it's just incredible. And so there's so many of these types of stories. And Geoffrey Hudson's life really touched me because of his ambivalent place in the world in which he lived. He was mocked, he was treated as a plaything, he was laughed at, yet he was also loved in the court, in the royal court of Charles I. He has this sense of pride, and so when he becomes a warrior, he's given a, a military title, captain of the horse. How did that, that gentleman view his life? And so on a very you know human level, that's what always touched me about these stories. You know, 
as we talked about before, there's a tendency, there's always a danger in sensationalizing or being voyeuristic or even mocking um, or romanticizing the freak show. But at the core, and this is what I really try to do in my book, you're talking about humans, individuals who lived these fascinating lives, who were, who were contained and um, determined on the basis of their bodies. And I wanted to get at their stories. You know, who were they? How did they feel about their experiences? What does that tell us about the Victorian world? What does that tell us about us? And so I really tried to present a human story of the, uh, the lives of performers who have, who have been marginalised or forgotten. And so Hudson is, is right up there. How do you think overall that we should look back at the history of freak shows and why do you think we should still look back at this? I think we should look back at the freak show and recognise that this wasn't a marginal affair, but it was central to Victorian society. You know, Queen Victoria was a freak fancier. She helped popularise the freak show. It was thanks to Queen Victoria that the freak show became such a popular, um, lovable affair amongst everyone, amongst the whole population. So this wasn't a marginal form of entertainment. It was a central form of entertainment in the Victorian reign. But more than that, it contains performers whose lives are fascinating and deserve to be told. And their story hasn't been clearly told or told loud enough. And so I, I hope that we look back and, and see the humanity in the history, that we see the centrality of the freak show in the Victorian reign, but also that through the prism of freakery, through the prism of difference, that you start to open up the Victorian world more generally. And it takes you into all of these different worlds from medicine to anthropology to ethnology to identity to gender to you know, discourses concerning uh, national identity. It takes you into a huge world. Um, and so I hope we look back and recognise the that the freak show um, was quintessentially Victorian. It transcended the Victorians. And uh, it tells us a lot about that, that age. That was John Wolfe. John's book, The Wonders, Lifting the Curtain on the Freak Show, Circus and Victorian Age, is available now, published by Michael O'Mara. We'll be reviewing The Wonders in the August issue of BBC History magazine. In the meantime, our July issue is out now with features on the medieval Baron Simon de Montfort, the execution of Charles I and the Second World War in Iraq. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday with a discussion about the early Anglo-Saxons. Mm-hmm.